Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and will deliver us, and will, he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I have mentioned before, as I have gone through the book of Corinthians, I, Second Corinthians, that I had the privilege of studying under a professor in seminary who actually wrote a very fine commentary on this book. And he put us through our paces, trying to translate it from Greek and having us understand it. But I know that as a fairly young seminarian, I had no appreciation, really, of what Paul was talking about. It took some experience under my belt. Perhaps first becoming a parent, and then a pastor of several congregations, and then finally a missionary evangelist seeking to plant churches overseas. And only then did I begin to feel something of the anxiety and the sorrow and concern that the Apostle Paul feels over the church in the city of Corinth. And so I want to begin by recapping Paul's history with the Corinthians and his reasons for writing this letter. I assure you this is the longest first point in my message. The second to third will go a little more swiftly following this. And here is, if you have a map uh, of it's Paul's second missionary journey, or even his third, it will help you to see the cities both in mainland Greece, Macedonia, and then in Asia, or modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul's ministry was carried out against the background of a corrupt and decaying uh, Greco-Roman society. Even when you read how the secular writers of Paul's day describe their own culture, uh, the moral corruption equals and perhaps even surpasses our own time. And that's the setting that Paul faced, for example, in Acts chapter 17, when he is deeply troubled as he visits the city of Athens and he sees idols to these pagan gods on virtually every street corner. 
And so he goes there to the Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the place where public debate and disputations were carried out, and he confronts the cultured skeptics and philosophers uh, about these, uh, the idolatry with the doctrine of the living and true God who made all things and all humanity. And above all, he confronts them with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, apparently, only a handful of converts believed his message of the gospel. Most scoffed at what he was saying, thinking he was speaking about foreign gods of some kind. So in the next chapter, Acts 18, Paul moves on a little bit west to the city of Corinth, where he finds a greater response to his preaching. But he's going to have to address the problems that arise when people are converted to Christ but they are still profoundly influenced by the pagan immorality that pervades an idolatrous culture. Missionaries face that overseas, and more and more pastors and evangelists are facing that in our own post-Christian nation. Corinth was a place of great immorality. Uh, The Greek goddess Aphrodite, better known perhaps by the Roman name Venus, uh, the goddess of love, was worshipped there. And it was attended by widespread uh, temple prostitution, religious prostitution. And Paul preached first there in the synagogue in Corinth, as was his custom. And when some of those Jews were converted to Christ, the controversy began. Paul was kicked out of the synagogue. And he moved conveniently next door to the home of a man named Titius Justus, a former uh, president of that synagogue. And then God granted a harvest of souls when many Corinthians believed and were baptized. Paul survives a riot and settles down in the city for a year and six months. It's one of the longest times he spent with one of his church plants instructing new converts in the word of God. That was the beginning of Paul's ministry in Corinth. And that Corinthian church seems to have been Paul's problem child. He caused, it caused him great pain and sorrow, but he loved it dearly. Paul apparently wrote four letters to Corinth, but two of them were not preserved for us in the canon of the New Testament, and two of them were preserved, as the Westminster Confession puts it, by God's singular care and providence. People ask sometimes, why were those two letters lost? And We can only speculate. Perhaps they were very specific letters dealing with certain disciplinary or pastoral concerns in Corinth that didn't have a universal application to all the churches. But we're not sure. It's due entirely to the wisdom and providence of our God. In a previous letter, Paul had instructed the church to discipline believers who were engaged in sexual immorality and refusing to repent. But that letter was not well received and it caused great misunderstanding. And so Paul writes another letter that we know now as 1 Corinthians uh, to deal with those disorder, disorders in the church and to answer questions. And that letter seemed to correct some of the issues, but Paul is still receiving negative reports. And so Paul makes a sudden trip from Ephesus, that's over in Asia Minor, Uh, on the uh, west coast of modern-day Turkey, and he crosses 
the uh, Adriatic Sea, or not Adriatic, the Aegean Sea, uh, to visit and to address those ongoing problems in Corinth. He wanted to make a personal visit. And this is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, as the painful visit. That visit apparently did not go well at all. Some in the Corinthian church had opposed Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a very troubling visit for Paul. And so he's anxious and he's deeply concerned about the future health of the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes yet another letter. This would be a third letter that he refers to in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians in verses 3 and 4. It's a letter, again, that the Spirit of God has not chosen uh, to preserve. But Paul tells us he wrote it out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. I think pastors know what it is to write letters to strain sheep in their flock uh, with that same feeling, affliction, much affliction, anguish of heart, and perhaps even many tears and prayers. And besides this, Paul is faced with such afflictions and burdens back in Asia, and I probably that was in the city of Ephesus there in Asia, that he feels literally that the sentence of death has been pronounced against him. We read that in verse 9 of our reading this morning, chapter 1. Now Paul has a plan to meet his associate, his missionary associate Titus, whom he left behind in Corinth. He would meet him on his way there to Macedonia, which is a province north of the mainland of Greece. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. That's a phrase we're going to come against, across again. Fighting without and fear within. And that summarizes our experiences at times in the Christian life. It is a very trying time for Paul. But Titus meets Paul in Macedonia with the good news that the church has, in fact, responded to Paul's teaching. They have disciplined the offender, one in particular. And now they acknowledge Paul's authority as a true apostle. Although that issue is going to come up again later in 2 Corinthians. And now they're eager to reconcile with him as their father in the faith. And so Paul sends this other letter that we call 2 Corinthians. That's a lengthy introduction to this letter to be sure. But it helps us understand what Paul is saying. But there are also three closely related problems in the church that have brought Paul great pain and sorrow. There are those in Corinth, still those in Corinth, questioning Paul's authority and his integrity. And there are three main issues. We're going to focus on the third one primarily. Some members claim Paul was fickle and he was untrustworthy. He said he would come, but then he didn't. He changed his plans and therefore we can't trust the man. He, we don't know when he's coming or not. Secondly, they preferred what Paul calls sarcastically super apostles, men who showed up in Corinth who appeared more spiritual, more eloquent in their speech, more impressive in their physical appearance than Paul. That's the problem he has to deal with in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Corinthians. But then thirdly, what we'll look at this morning, the Corinthians wanted a gospel of glory, glory now that, that bypassed 
suffering. And that last issue, a gospel of glory, is how Paul begins his letter. Paul is saying, in effect, dear brothers and sisters, suffering is part of the Christian life because as suffering abounds, comfort in Christ will abound even more. There is a cost to following Christ in this fallen world. Costliness is part of Christian service. We know that. Those of you who serve in various capacities in the church, it costs you something. And yet Paul would go on to say that costliness is part of our fellowship with Christ. But Paul is very quick to say there is another side to fellowship with Christ. It is to know the blessing of the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort as he addresses God in verse 3. And then as we share that comfort with others, it is to see a growing fruitfulness in our lives and in the lives of those whom we serve. Do you know the Apostle Paul carried in his body the marks of suffering? Later on in Galatians chapter 6, he probably wrote Galatians before, 2 Corinthians, he refers to those marks of suffering as the marks of Jesus. In Galatians 6, 17. What do you think he means? Well, try to imagine Paul after a long, tiring day of ministering the word, preaching perhaps open air, and nothing is more exhilarating, nothing's more exhausting than open air preaching. Or perhaps of ministering or working as a tent maker. He worked there, that was his trade, his calling. And he worked there in certain places with Priscilla and Aquila as tent makers. Uh, hard physical labor as a, a leather worker, perhaps making those little stalls and canopies and tents for the marketplace. And imagine him at the end of a long day, he goes down to a stream with other men, perhaps to a, a public fountain, and he strips off his outer garment to wash himself. What would his friends see on Paul's body? They would have seen scars on his back. Later on, Paul tells us five times he received 39 lashes. That was from the Jewish authorities. They were so scrupulous not to exceed 40 that they stopped at 39. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. And three times he was shipwrecked. We have only one account of that shipwreck at the end of, of the book of, the, of Acts. I suspect if one of our Orthodox Presbyterian uh, missionaries had suffered half of that, uh, they would have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and put on a leave of absence. It's not just the floggings and the shipwrecks that Paul experienced. There are emotional afflictions that he, Paul, and all of us suffer. There's grief in our lives. There's grief over loved ones who do not know Christ and are growing older and closer to death. There's brokenheartedness over a wandering child. There's the falling away of church members that we've mentored and that we love. Most grievously, there are young people perhaps we've groomed for service in the church. I can think of two young men who we have worked with in one country and sent to seminary in another country in Africa and showed great promise. One I've worked with on several occasions. He worked as my translator in a language that I'm not very familiar with. And he's gone silent. He's gone silent on us. We hear that he's in a small little house church, but no contact with the other missionaries. 
That's grief, deep grief for those who've invested years in his life. There's the, there's, uh, these things bring discouragement. And you know, sometimes they can even cause, cause us to spiral into spiritual depression. And certainly there are physical afflictions as well. Paul knew those, and so do some of us. Chronic illness, recurring pain. There are days of discouragement in our work and in our service uh, in Christ's church. There's relational afflictions when our motives are questioned and our name is slandered and our friendships are strained. We just read a letter from some of our missionaries in Karamoja. We prayed for Tina DeYoung today. They've had to pull back on some of their outreach because of a shortage of, of missionaries on that field. And now all kinds of rumors and slanders are being, being uh, directed against some of the missionaries because they can't carry out all their former tasks. Well, there are spiritual afflictions, temptations, temptations to be impatient and critical of our fellow servants in Christ, feelings of regret over the past, sometimes even doubts that I'm really called and gifted for my ministry in the church. And worst of all, sometimes there's, there's a, a fleeting sense of the Lord's presence resting upon us. Every one of us is afflicted in some way. Martin Luther famously said that Christians, we Christians are simultaneously sinners and justified. Paul would agree with that. But I think here he would add, we Christians are at the same time redeemed sinners and sufferers. And the fundamental problem, of course, is sin. All suffering is the result of sin, of living in a fallen world. And yet the biggest grief in my life is not that I sometimes still suffer, but that I still sin. And Paul knows that. And that's why he calls us to be patient and compassionate with one another when we're going through times of infliction. And with that comfort we have received in our own affliction from the God of all comfort, Paul says, in turn, comfort others and their affliction. That leads me then to two quick points from our text. How does God comfort us in affliction? Sometimes he gives us, he comforts us by giving us an extraordinary measure of his grace. I was tempted to say a supernatural grace, but all grace is supernatural because it comes from God. But I'm talking about an extraordinary measure of grace. We simply sense his presence with us and in us. He's given us a peace that passes all understanding. And we can't explain it based on our circumstances because they're all falling apart. And yet, through the Holy Spirit, God works on our hearts. He works on our minds. He works on our emotions and even at times on our bodies to give us peace and comfort. We can feel his presence in the midst of pain. It is a gift of God. As Paul says later on in this letter, chapter 6, verse 10, we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's something the world, this fallen world, has no conception of. But God also comforts us through other people. We leap ahead to chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. You have that, Paul says, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within, opposition from out, struggles and yet, and fear within. You know, I think when I was growing up and in a Christian church and hearing messages, I tended to think of these apostles as superhuman figures, so much closer to God than the rest of us, 
not needing anything else in this world but God himself. But Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 7, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. His associate Titus came from Corinth and he brought some good news that encouraged Paul. But you know, sometimes we just show up even if we don't know what to say. We may bring a meal. We may just sit and listen. And we may pray. God is able to comfort us in extraordinary ways without other means. But he can also comfort us in ordinary ways through friends. I think some of you know Margaret and I spent a brief time as guests of a country in Africa in prison along with the rest of our congregation. And we were separated uh, from our congregation. They didn't want me uh, proselytizing any more people, visitors to the church or ministering. So they put me in a cell with strangers. And uh, it, it's alarming when you're shoved into the cell and the big steel door clangs behind you and it's dark. Uh, they turn the light on at night to keep you from sleeping and the light off by day so you can't see anything. And uh, three men were standing in front of me and immediately gave me the right hand of fellowship and a warm embrace. They were brothers I had never met before, elder, two deacons from another underground house church. Uh, What a rich time of fellowship, praying together. We had six Muslims in our cell who five times a day would bow east to Mecca and pray. One was a, a iman, a teacher, a leader, didn't want to talk to us very much. But we would get, sit around in a circle as Christian with our uh, Christian brothers around in a circle and pray and minister God's word to one another and comfort one another with our promises. I've never saw those men again. I don't think I will have a chance to see them until we get to glory. But oh, what comfort they brought to my heart during that time. Above all, brothers and sisters, God comforts us by reminding us of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Think of the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. Those famous words, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Brothers and sisters, what is your comfort in pain and affliction. As a modern medicine, I'm thankful for living in a place where I have first world, access to first world medicine. Is it health insurance? Is it adequate retirement funds and pension? You know, while living overseas, I knew that if civil unrest uh, broke out because of my American passport, American passport, the embassy would do their best to try to evacuate missionaries to a safe place. Our brothers and sisters, our national believers, indigenous ones, would have to remain behind and face whatever. Well, the answer, that, that, that is a measure of comfort, but that doesn't bring lasting peace or comfort. The answer is, I am not my own. 
My comfort does not come from who I am or anything I have or can do. My comfort comes from the fact that my whole life, body and soul, belong to Jesus. I am nothing in myself and have nothing of my own. But now think quickly now just of the blessings of being owned by Jesus. Blessings that the catechism lists for us. Jesus paid for all our sins with his precious blood. There is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Jesus has set you free from the bondage of the devil. Morgan and I minister to people who still very much fear the powers of darkness. And those fears are creeping back into our land today as the Christian faith seems to be ebbing to some degree. But Satan has no mastery over you. You belong to a new Lord who has purchased you with his precious blood. But then the catechism moves on from what Christ has accomplished to what he is doing in his ongoing work for us. Christ watches over every detail of your life so that even the hairs of your head are numbered. He works all things together for your salvation and for your ultimate good. Christ has secured for you the gift of the Holy Spirit, who in turn assures us of eternal life. And Christ, by his Holy Spirit, makes you ready and willing and able to live for him. He's implanted new desires and new abilities through your new life in Christ Jesus. That is where we get our only comfort in life and death. And Paul would agree with this. He writes in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. And despair means literally no way out, no way through. Persecuted, he writes, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How could a Christian say something like that? Well, it comes from being sure of the blessing and the comfort we have by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, we have comfort because God raises the dead. In verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul says, We felt that we have received the sentence of death. But that makes us to rely on God who raises the dead. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he writes, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. We know that Easter Sunday comes But once a year, but every Lord's Day is a Resurrection Sunday. And we can say this morning, we can believe and we can confess, just as surely as we gather together each Lord's Day, so surely shall my body be raised from the dead. And so Paul can say there in chapter 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Our outside is wearing out, and for some of us it's at various rates and at alarming increasing speed. And yet, inside, inwardly, our souls, our hearts, our new minds in Christ is being renewed every day. And that gives us hope in the midst of our afflictions. No one really knows, except the Lord, what Paul suffered in Asia, but it must have been bad because he says it was, he felt like a death sentence was hanging over his head. And I think he was tempted to despair. In this instance, there was a miraculous deliverance by God. But the lesson God taught Paul was to rely not on himself 
but on God who raises the dead. You know, critics and skeptics have long told us that Christianity is a crutch for those who are weak and who are crippled. I've heard that. I've had it thrown in my face. Perhaps you have too. And how do you respond to that? Well, the answer is no. Christianity is more than just a crutch. It's a life support system for those who were once spiritually dead but now are alive in Christ. And that verb in verse 1 uh, of chapter 1, and verse 9, I should say, verse 9 of chapter 1, where Paul says, we felt like we'd received the sentence of death, that received is in the perfect tense, which means that it is an ongoing sentence of death, Paul feels, hanging over his head. He knows he's but a mortal man living in a fallen world. More afflictions will come to him in his service for Christ, and finally death. Apart from his Savior's return, Paul, in his lifetime, Paul knew he would die. But he knew something else. He knew he belonged to a faithful Savior who suffered and died for him. And Paul knew that his future was outside of his control. Do you believe that? That your future, your life, is not ultimately under your control? For parents, your children are not, at least when they leave the home. But for the child of God, our lives, our ministries, our families, our church, are under the control of a sovereign God who raised his son from the dead and who will one day raise us to glory with him. Can we learn to say with Paul, even though I suffer, Christ suffered too. He suffered once for all for sin. But I know there is a measure of suffering allotted to me by my loving Father in heaven as I share in the sufferings of Christ. But I share not only in his sufferings, I share also in his comfort. And I, in turn, can comfort and encourage others with what I received from Christ. And I can have hope in any affliction because God raises the dead. He raised Jesus and he will raise us with him on that last day. Recently, I listened to a message on another theme by the Scottish preacher, Sinclair Ferguson, and he quoted some stanzas from a hymn I had never heard of, completely unfamiliar. It's in none of the hymn books that I possess. It's called By Gracious Powers. By gracious powers so wonderfully sheltered and confidently waiting come what may, we know that God is with us night and morning and never fails to greet us each new day. And then the third stanza goes like this. And when this cup you give is filled to brimming with bitter suffering, hard to understand, we take it thankfully and without trembling out of so good and so beloved a hand. Let's pray.